Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And for the next hour, we here on the Metro Connection team are going to take you by the hand as we go strolling, running, rolling, stretching, road tripping, meandering, skateboarding, trekking, all over the D.C. region with a show we're calling On On the the Move. Move. And on today's On the Move show, we're going to meet a guy on a road trip to visit late presidents. We'll hear from soldiers learning to move after devastating injuries. We'll go on a whirlwind tour of an election campaign where the candidates are anything but scripted. And we'll hang out with local skateboarders and find out how D.C.'s skateboarding scene is really taking off. First, when it comes to moving around... All right, so I'm heading over toward H Street and 8th. Many of us rely on our eyes, waiting for the signal to change, and our ears. Lots of people on the sidewalk. But what happens when we're navigating space and we don't have access to the ladder? Hearing people can hear what's occurring behind them. So deaf people are taking advantage of other cues to what's happening in their space. This is Robert Servich. And I am a sign language user, and I'm utilizing right now a voice interpreter to interpret my remarks. Robert works at Gallaudet University. And I hold two positions there. One position in the Deaf Studies Department and the other... In the Office of Design and Planning, specializing in deaf space and its research. Deaf space refers to space that's been optimized for use by deaf people, who primarily rely on vision and touch to navigate the world, right? So an interior deaf space might feature wider stairs and hallways, plenty of light, and seating areas arranged in circles or semicircles. But what about an exterior deaf space? Well, that's where Robert Servage comes in with his latest research, which he conducted, by the way, right here on H Street Northeast. What I did was have two different groups, each of them in dyads of two, navigating the space, one group using sign language and the other using spoken English. This afternoon, Roberts brought along a pair of signers to reenact the experiment. Gallaudet students Jamie Hardman and Zach Ennis. Robert gives each one a little GoPro video camera. Put that on, the head-mounted camera. Which captures a 170-degree span of vision. As compared to a normal camera, which typically has only about a 35-degree angle. He then asks the pair to start talking as they walk down H Street. And I'm going to have you just keep on going until you get to the Liberty Tree restaurant. I'll meet you there. You just go ahead and start walking. And as Jamie and Zach walk and talk, Robert will test how often they experience what he calls... Visual convergence. In other words, how often Jamie has Zach in her visual field and vice versa. Sign language users require a ton of visual convergence since they use their hands, faces, and bodies to convey meaning. So I'm assuming then if you were testing hearing people walking in dyads like this, there probably wouldn't be as much visual convergence. That's true, and that was exactly the result that the data showed. Because after all, If your language is verbal and auditory, you don't require as much eye contact. I mean, I could be standing behind you or in front of you, and you'd still hear me talking. But if your language is more kinetic and visual, like sign languages, then you do need that visual convergence. Get this, though. As Jamie and Zach take off down the street in front of me and Robert... We'd better speed up a little bit. You can see they're going much faster than us. We'll have to catch up. (laughs) We both observe a pretty interesting thing. Even though Zach and Jamie are maintaining a lot of visual convergence, they're not bumping into other pedestrians or lampposts or anything like that. 
And once we get to the Liberty Tree restaurant... We reached our destination. Yes, just right over there on the corner. Jamie Hardman explains through an interpreter how she and Zach were able to do that. While I was talking, he was looking at me. And if I moved my eyes in any sense, sense of a way that showed that there was a barrier or something, he immediately knew to look ahead and to check his environment. So because of that visual convergence, deaf people are especially attuned to all sorts of cues from their conversational partner. As Robert Servidge shares his data with me, all sorts of bar graphs and pie charts representing different conversational pairs, he says you should never underestimate the power of eye contact. Or, as we so often say, seeing eye to eye. You do see here that these two right here, with these very small areas of visual convergence, they scored very very lowly on that. In fact, they later divorced. That's very telling. Yeah, you know, we don't know if it really is predictive, but... <laughs> but the main question here, the main point, is how can all of these findings be applied to something like urban planning? When we think about what's required to build healthy community fabrics, we typically consider community places where people stop and stand or sit. But that's not true at all. We actually make varying connections as we navigate space. So it's important for us then to consider the fact that we have so many people here in D.C., for example, that commute. And that commute is one point wherein community fabric may be built into that process. That's why Robert Servage advocates for such city elements as wider sidewalks so deaf people can walk side by side, better lit metro stations, even more reflective surfaces on buildings so deaf people can, with a glance, see what's happening behind them. But no matter whether we're talking about buildings, sidewalks, train stations, or the street, it's crucial, he says, that the framework of urban planning considers one specific thing. Human dignity. And what does human dignity mean within that frame? We have to start with that philosophical question. What does the dignity of the human being mean in that context? And then move on from there. see images and results from Robert Servage's Peripatetic Convergence Research Project, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Okay, we'll get a move on now from H Street to the American Road as we meet a guy who's on a very particular kind of road trip. You could say Brady Carlson has a bit of a fixation with U.S. presidents, not the living, breathing ones, mind you, but rather the more than three dozen heads of state who are no longer with us. His journey to visit and blog about every presidential gravesite began right here in the D.C. region, where four U.S. presidents have been laid to rest. Jacob Fenston tagged along with Carlson to find out what these graves say about the men they memorialize. I met Brady Carlson at Arlington National Cemetery, where two U.S. presidents are buried. President Kennedy's pretty easy to find, just follow the tour buses. But William Howard Taft, his grave is hidden behind a huge memorial to women in service. I don't see any signs for it. 
I see women's memorial signs. By the time you start to see signs for this grave site, you're kind of already there. This is one of the first stops on Carlson's journey to visit every president's grave. Each grave, he says, reflects something about the man beneath the marble. For example, the fact that Taft's grave is obscured by a grander monument. It's almost fitting that his memorial is overshadowed by another because in life he was always overshadowed by another president. Carlson lives in New Hampshire, which boasts one grave site. This project will take him all over the country, visiting 18 states and all 38 dead presidents. It does strike me as a little morbid. Um, I think it's that I can't meet them in person. So this is as close as I'm ever going to get. Carlson isn't alone in this obsession with presidents and their graves. It turns out visiting presidents' graves is a legitimate hobby, and it's one that got presidential historian Richard Norton Smith hooked at a young age. The first gravesite that actually I visited, was, in fact, it was exactly 50 years ago. It was in the summer of 1962. That was a few months before Smith's ninth birthday, the first of many fun-filled family vacations. Well, you know, it was the classic station wagon from hell, you know, vacation, and We'd go off for two weeks, and I would basically play the itinerary. And, of course, it always included the gravesite of some obscure president. I think what, what draws you to a gravesite is not the site itself. I mean, that's part of it, obviously. But, you know, there's nothing more democratic than death. Uh, all of us will confront it. And how we confront it may be as revealing of character and certainly as dramatic as anything else that occurs in life. So we're walking downstairs to the crypt level, which simply, the word crypt simply means hidden. Ann Harmon is the visitor program's manager here at the um, one of the grave sites. But first, a little presidential trivia. Four presidents are buried in the D.C. metro region, but only one is buried in the actual District of Columbia. Any guesses? Here's a hint. He was president of Princeton University and... Um, Following that, he was the governor of New Jersey. Okay, one more hint. This president famously said of World War I, We're going to make this the war to end all wars. We're going to make the world safe for democracy. If you guessed Woodrow Wilson, you're right. The 28th president of the United States is buried at the National Cathedral in northwest D.C. When Wilson died in 1924, only one small section of the cathedral was completed, so that's where he was buried. In 1956, he was moved upstairs to the main nave. Harmon says these days, President Wilson gets a lot of visitors. Yes, actually, we do have quite a few visitors um, who ha- are going to various places all over the country to see the final resting places of our presidents. Of course, one of the most visited presidential graves is across the Potomac in Mount Vernon, Virginia. George Washington's remains are within the sarcophagus on the right. Martha Washington's remains are within the sarcophagus on the left. Tour guide Angie Toppings is pointing out the two marble boxes holding the first president and his wife. Each year, a million visitors pass through the gates of Washington's Mount Vernon estate, and many stop here at the tomb to pay their respects, including hordes of school kids like Taylor Hopper here on her senior trip from Springstead High School in Florida. It's just really inspiring because you think about all the things like, um, like he did. You know, like, and he wasn't very old, like, when he died. So, like, he just did so much in such a short span of lifetime. So it just makes you think, like, you can do that, too. Meanwhile, Brady Carlson, who's visiting all the president's graves, is back home blogging about his trip to D.C. Seeing Washington's tomb, he writes, put him in the state of breathless hyper-giddiness of a tween at a Justin Bieber concert. But as great as the trip to D.C. was, 
We've still got a lot more work to do, a whole lot more presidents to visit. So That's Carlson in a video he recently posted on his blog. Next up, he's heading to the Midwest, to Illinois, the land of Lincoln, and Michigan, the land of Gerald Ford. I'm Jacob Fenston. You can see photos of the D.C. region's presidential graves and find a link to Brady Carlson's blog on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a quick break, but when we get back, finding your stride after a life-changing injury on the battlefront. You see other people doing stuff instead of being like, well, I can't do that because I don't have arms. It's like, oh, that guy's doing it. I can do it. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. And welcome back to Metro Connection, where this week we are on the move. So let's see, we've already done some late presidential road tripping, some scientific strolling, and in just a few minutes, we're going to do some skateboarding. First, though, we're going to meet some people who are working hard to regain their stride. They're injured soldiers who lost limbs in Iraq or Afghanistan. Emily Kopp stopped by the Amputee Center at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda to see what it's like to learn how to walk and even run after a devastating injury on the battlefield. It's like your local health club deep in the bowels of Walter Reed. There are treadmills, a climbing wall, reclining bikes, and an indoor track that Staff Sergeant Christopher Ryan Walker says is just a bit different. You see the, the hangers hanging over there where you, people put on the harness and you can actually walk without the fear of falling and stuff when you first start out, which is a big deal, especially when you don't have hands to catch yourself. Amputees come here to meet their therapists and work up a sweat. They've got goals big and small. I really want to get back to Xbox. <laughs> I love sports. College football, of course, Florida Gators, that's my team. Out of privacy concerns, Walter Reed asked that we not reveal this soldier's name. Pull, 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 pull. All right, we're going to push a little bit more. As the arm wrestles his therapist and his fiance listens in, he says there's another reason why the swelling in his reconstructed left hand has to subside. I want to be able to wear my wedding ring, so... Gotta get that thing, gotta get get that thing down. So he submits to something his therapist, Eric Johnson, calls torture tape. That means taping down every knuckle into a tight fist. You're doing good. I know, that's the last one. That's the last one. Just hold what you got. Hold what you got. Zero out of ten, what would you say? Just remember, remember ten probably was when you got your legs blown off. So... 9.5. At any given time, about 150 soldiers get this type of tough love at Walter Reed. Before the center opened, military hospitals usually performed the necessary surgeries, then sent the patients home. Major David Rosell says that didn't work so well. 
and then we were supposed to be taken care of, I guess, by our mothers in this 1950s system that was set up by the, the Veterans Administration. I didn't want any part of that. So I went back to my unit, recovered at my unit, and then went back to war. While I was at war, things were developing in D.C., the perfect storm with BRAC and everything else to build this amputee center. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill saw injured soldiers weren't dying of these wounds. Researchers created prosthetics that let amputees do things that had been impossible, like walking backwards. And a soft-spoken sports therapist who saw amputees as no different than athletes became the center's director, Chuck Scoville. When they first come in, we do a lot of the uh, core strengthening, the balance-type drills. We get them into their prosthetic devices, um, starting them with walking. Uh, We do throwing a football around, throwing frisbee around, um, doing uh, kind of rope pulls, things you'd see other professional athletes do in a, in a sports facility. Lose your leg below the knee? Scoville says treat it like an ankle sprain. Above the knee? It's just like an ACL injury. Tough, but Scoville says it's all to get the patients where they want to be. Our goal is when they leave, they can do everything they want to do. Um, for some of them, that's summoning Mount McKinley or summoning Mount Kilimanjaro. For over 300, it's been returning to active duty, doing what they did before they got injured there. Some of them, it's going out starting their own businesses. Some have recently competed in the Paralympics. Many amputees, though, want nothing more than their independence. Christopher Ryan Walker lost both arms and a leg in Afghanistan. He considers getting dressed by himself one of his first big achievements. Shirts were weren't too kind at first because you kind of get lost in the shirt. But uh, I've gotten it down now. Like, just if I had hands, I'll just put, put my arms through it and throw it over now. And it's, it's a little different taking it off. i got to, like, bite it and pull it up and flip it over. But it, it's pretty easy. Like, pants, it's like a big routine. you got to sit up, sit down, like, lean against the wall to do this. And it's just, just workarounds for everything. He's not complaining. He says that's hard to do here. Oh, yeah, because then you see other people doing stuff instead of being like, well, I can't do that because I don't have arms. It's like, oh, that guy's doing it. I can do it. That is something David Roselle says amputees can't find elsewhere. Uh, I guess it was two years ago now. I remember walking outside and listening to one Marine in a wheelchair with missing both legs above the knee, talking to another Marine in the wheelchair, missing both legs above the knee, telling him to, to quit complaining and he gets serious about his rehab. If he wanted to go back and fight with other Marines, he needed to get his head in the game and get ready for that. About a quarter of the patients here eventually return to active duty. The rest move on. To prepare them for a life in a world of narrow grocery aisles, stairs, and public restrooms, therapists lead tours of Trader Joe's and other places in Bethesda. You may see them around town. I'm Emily Kopp. Our next story is about a guy who's moving on out of his job. Dennis Martyr is not a household name, but until this week, he had an important job on the board of the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, or MWA. That's the entity that's overseeing the $6 billion Silver Line project at Dulles Airport. In recent months, MWA's spending and ethical practices have come under intense scrutiny. A scathing Washington Post editorial criticized Martyr by name, and Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell attempted to remove Martyr from the MWA board. 
The two sides just settled their legal battle, and several days ago, Martyr agreed to step down after his final board meeting. Transportation reporter Martin DeCaro recently met up with Martyr, who says he defends the airport's authority, including its controversial plan that would have Dulles Toll Road users covering 75 percent of the costs of the Silverline Project's second phase. Why did you decide to settle with the McDonnell administration and step down? I decided to step down just because, number one, it was it was a major distraction of the real thing that's going on out there, and that's building the Silver Line. Uh, the Silver Line is such a major infrastructure project for the area, and uh, my dispute with the governor uh, and, and him trying to remove me was becoming a major distraction, and I felt that uh, to actually move the board forward and move the agenda forward, it was uh, best for me to come to terms uh, with the governor at the same time not have a governor just remove me. Many of our listeners are not familiar with you or any of the board members for the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority. However, the Federal Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood himself, wrote a letter to MWA. It did not name you, but it did allude to, quote, excessive board spending on air travel meals and wine, as well as other, quote, questionable dealings. The Washington Post did name you in a scathing editorial in which it criticized some of the travel that you had. You say you've done nothing wrong. Do you still believe that? That's correct. I mean, uh, the board has a travel policy that has been in uh, in the papers for years now as controversial. Uh, we have a policy that allows us to go to airport conferences. It's not like we pull out a globe and spin it and say, we're going here today. Um, the airport authority provides us a list of, pro- of uh, conferences that they feel will help us get more educated about the air aviation industry. It's the only way board members like us can all get educated on what the realities of the industry are, where the industry is going, and what trends there are out there that can make our airports better each and every day. How did you feel personally when the Washington Post wrote that editorial, naming you right at the top of it? Yeah, it was it was clearly political. I mean, I, I'm not you know I, I don't really let the politics of the day uh, bother me very much, but it was clearly political. I, I do work for a labor union. There's no doubt that the governor of Virginia and uh, Congressman Wolf, both Republicans from Virginia, do not like labor. The state legislature in Virginia and the McDonald administration approved $150 million for funding for phase two of the Silver Line, which is roughly $3 billion. The federal government has no funding for phase two. So the burden to fund and finance that project is falling on the shoulders of toll road users of the Dulles Toll Road. Is it fair to make toll road users subsidize a rail project? Look, I live in Loudoun County, and I'll have to take that toll road just like everybody else every single day. And uh, for our elected officials to punt this to MWA and to Fairfax County and to Loudoun County to pick up the tab and the toll road riders is a disgrace. Uh, it's not fair. I want to challenge you on that. The lack of federal funding is directly the result of the project not meeting FDA criteria for ridership. And you are aware of that, of course. So if such an enormous project cannot receive more federal funding right from the outset, should it even be built in the first place? Well, then why did they, the federal government provide $900 million for the first phase? Did they really only want it to go to uh, Reston? And is that where they wanted it to end? If they wanted it to end there, then they should have just said, we're only going to provide $900 million and let's end it right there. But no, this project is going to one of our major airports and beyond. Um, I got to believe the federal government will have to pony up more money. Secretary LaHood has really put his long arm into the process of uh, procurement. He's put his long arm process into how MWA is going to be run. And uh, I wish he'd put his long arm into his pocket and make sure that we put more money into this project because it's a disgrace that the federal government and the Commonwealth of Virginia is not funding this project. As you step down from this 
board, which, as I mentioned before, is in the public spotlight now because it's running this huge project. Is there anything else you want to say? I regret that we as an agency were putting it out the right way and it was going very well. Uh, and I regret that they've they've kind of stumbled that a little bit and made us look bad. But I still think at the end of the day, this project will be built, um, phase two, with a project labor agreement again. And it'll be voluntary, but it still will be uh, under a project labor agreement. And I think that then we'll build this thing on time and on budget and safe. And by 2017, you're going to have railed to Dulles and beyond. But um, the tolls are my still my my major concern. And if we don't figure out that mix on how we're going to get those down, um, this could be a boondoggle if, the, if it's built out there with uh, you know, $10 tolls. That was Dennis Martyr, a union official and former member of the board of EMWA, speaking with WAMU's Martin DeCaro. And we're wondering, how do you feel about the Dulles Toll Road toll hike scheduled for January? You can email us at metro at wamu.org. Thus far in our On the Move show, we've talked about what? Getting around on foot, by car, by train. But our next story focuses on a whole different kind of locomotion. Skateboarding. Now, it's not a news flash to say skateboarders have been a fixture on D.C. streets for quite a while now. But longtime enthusiasts say the sport is really taking off right now and appealing to a broader base of boarders than ever before. Lauren Landau hit the streets and the skate parks to bring us the story. Skateboarder Daniel Kim chuckles as his two youngest students sit on their boards and ride down a skate ramp. Milo and Iad are three and four years old, respectively, and thrilled by their new skateboards, which they mainly use as sleds. Kim grabs their attention and flips over his board, exposing its stickered and scratched belly. This is the board, these are the trucks, and these are the wheels. Yeah, do you know what this is called here? Trucks! The trucks? And what is this called right here? Kim has been skating in D.C. for about a decade. He says in recent years, the local skate scene has become younger, more diverse, and much larger. And so he recently started Street Smart Skate, a school dedicated to teaching proper skateboarding skills and technique. Everywhere I go, I see a lot of new younger kids, and a lot of them really are just sitting on their skateboards, you know, on their knees and just pushing with their hands. They like skateboarding, but they just don't know what to do on the skateboard. Today, he's at Shaw Skate Park, teaching kids how to turn on their skateboards. Put your weight on the back of the board, on the very edge, and then when you turn, you have to turn with your hips and your shoulder, okay? Like this. Can you try that? One of his young protégés is nine-year-old Cordell Green, who hopes to one day become a professional skateboarder. He's only been skating for two years, but Cordell is landing tricks that guys twice his age struggle to perform. My brother's really good, and all these other people are teaching me how to do, like, bigger ollies and all these different tricks. Daniel Kim and Dan Harper and Bobby Worst, they all help me when I try difficult tricks. Cordell comes to Shaw Skate Park every day, usually with his dad. Kevin Green says skateboarding has a positive effect on his kids. I've watched how this whole relationship with skateboarding have brought them into focus in a way that, as a parent, I probably would not have been able to so early. Skateboarding has allowed them to take on something that gives them a desire to 
try something, fail at it, but continue to work until they get it. New skate parks, along with events like National Go Skateboarding Day, have increased local interest in the sport. But Kim says pop culture is also a factor. I feel like the influence of that was through um, rap, hip-hop. You know, a lot of prominent rappers these days, like Lil Wayne, Rick Ross, Wiz Khalifa, Odd Future, they all kind of started wearing skateboarding clothes, putting some shine on skateboarding. They even rap about skateboarding. So I guess once kids started hearing about that, they're like, okay, they felt like it was cool. Just a few years ago, most D.C. skaters were white men in their teens and 20s. But Kim says that's no longer the case. Nowadays, you'll see a bunch of young black kids around 9 to 17-year-olds. It's completely different. Like I would say about like 75% of the skateboarders in D.C. are black males. Pro skater Darren Harper is known as the Obama of skateboarding. I met up with him at Freedom Plaza, where we talked about D.C.'s evolving skate scene. He says he encourages kids to defy stereotypes and embrace skateboarding. The kid who lives in the hood, he's going to have to face his peers as far as, like, maybe looking at him like, yo, we don't do that here. Like, we're in the hood, nobody riding on skateboard, you know what I'm saying? So you got to face that. My thing is I try to dedicate my skill and my swag to just showing them, like, you can do it. I'm, I'm as real in the hood as they come. You know, I don't get no realer than me. In the late 80s, Harper was living in a rough neighborhood in Southeast when he found a discarded skateboard. He now says skateboarding saved his life and is a healthy way for kids to stay out of trouble. For the most part, this skating keeps them active. And I know when I came up, you know, when there was negative things going on, Half of the time, skateboarding kept me away from that because I was down here. I was able to leave the neighborhood and the block and get away from the violence and everything was going on. Ironically, skateboarders are often regarded as rebels and rule breakers. And to be fair, some of them are. But Kim says skateboarders are often misjudged. Most people kind of misinterpret skateboarding. Like if we're skateboarding in the downtown area in the buildings, security guards or just random pedestrians would freak out. They just look at it like we're doing something horrible when really it's just us just purely just trying to have a good time and just trying to skateboard and we don't have any bad intentions. Kim predicts that schools will eventually promote skateboarding as a serious sport like football or baseball. But for now, skate school is held wherever Kim and his students roll to. I'm Lauren Landau. After the break, it's Bookend, our monthly conversation with D.C. writers. This time we'll hear from Pulitzer Prize winner Edward P. Jones. You find, of course, that so many people, they wake up in the morning, have an idea for a story, and they go with it before they even know what the conclusion will be. I don't particularly like asking myself what should come next. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're going up, down, and all around with a show we are calling On the Move. Earlier in the hour, we learned the ins and outs of navigating the city as a deaf person, and we met wounded soldiers who are relearning how to move and get on with life. We've also heard from a guy on a road trip to visit the final resting places of our nation's presidents. And speaking of our nation's presidents... Thank you, my fellow Americans. You know who I am. I am the current president of the United States of America. 
America, when you elected me as the first openly gay Asian slash Hispanic American <laughs> as president of this fine nation of ours, we were in a very deep hole. Okay, obviously in the real world, this guy isn't actually our nation's president. But in a black box theater in northwest D.C., he's every bit the commander in chief. We're sort of creating a parallel universe for each performance, so it's not exactly our world, but it kind of rhymes with our world, if you will. That's Mark Chalfant, the artistic and executive director of Washington Improv Theater, or WIT. He's also the director of POTUS Among Us, WIT's once-every-four-years send-up of the American presidential election cycle. I recently sat down with Chalfant at Source, WIT's home near 14th and U, to chat about the show, which began two election cycles ago in 2004. And it was this great experience for all the artists involved. And we were sad at the time that, you know, it's really the kind of show that's only enjoyable when we're really in the thick of the campaign. Once this is over, I think we're all going to be grateful to go back to our regular lives. But it's a great way to participate in the process by making art about it. So are you trying to make comments and commentary about what happens in America during the election? Is it just for fun? It's a mix of both. I mean, on the one hand, it's just a completely comedic, artistic experience that gives people, you know, an hour, hour and a half away from the real world and the grind of watching polls bounce up and down and wondering what it all means. But on the other hand, it really is an exploration of if an audience in a theater is treated like the public of America, what are the choices that they'll make? And what are the ways they will guide a show forward when asked? So, for example, last night at the top of the show, five candidates presented stump speeches. We had a a governor in the mix. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You all know me. I'm Prudence Merriweather Scold, governor of Georgia. We had a senator in the mix. As many of you know, I'm Thomas Church. I have been serving the people of Iowa in the U.S. Congress. And neither of those two who had actual governing experience advanced into the show. The audience was much more interested in a frat boy. I'm named Shad Renner. You probably don't know me. I go to the University of Texas. I won the So Be, So You Think You Could Be a President contest. And a Golden Corral waitress who does cosplay as a Star Trek commander. Live long and prosper. These are words that you've all heard before, but they mean a lot to me. So how do you decide which five candidates are going to be stumping every night? Because it rotates, right? Yes, it rotates. The The full cast of the show is 19 performers, and on any given night, 13 people are in. And the casting for the candidates is mostly about just creating an interesting diversity of players. So each, each performer in improv has different go-tos, a certain style, um, whether you're very cerebral or very physical, verbal, emotional, are you more of an actor or are you more of a thinker, all of those things. So just as the director, I'm just trying to create a fun mix. And then in terms of the show itself, obviously it's improv, so things are being made up on the spot, but there is kind of an arc to the show. How much is scripted versus off the cuff? Mm. So, yeah, the the overall structure is scripted in terms of beginning the show at sort of a primary night selection process and ending the show with an actual election process and a victory speech by whoever the winning candidate is. In between those things, 
there will usually be a debate of some sort, but it, it could be the presidential candidates, it could be vice presidents, it could be first ladies. We had a first lady debate at one of our rehearsals, and it was hilarious. So it's pretty flexible. We know that we're dealing a lot with media matters in the show. So there's a lot of in-the-street reporting, and there might be like a panel show of pundits, but none of that is hardwired in. I think the, the helpful way for us to think of it is there's a really long a la carte menu of things we might order each night, but it's going to change with each performance. And then the other factor is the audience. We're trying to really engage the audience at different moments in the show, and things that they say might steer us in different directions. So like last night, an audience member suggested that some problems in America could be solved by giving everyone free beer. You, you sir, what, what is something that you want to see a president do for you? Here's uh, a free beer, dude. Right. Not enough free beer. Not enough free beer. Marking it down is an issue that we're going to be dealing with. And that right. sort of immediately found its way yes, into one of the candidates' uh, strategies, and there were keggers going on you know, in communities across the country. Some of the things that happened in the in the performance I saw, there was a scandal. Breaking news, cheating allegations, the Daily Texan has broken it wide open. Did Shad Runner cheat in his Sobe submission? The American people have never looked kindly upon cheaters. No. Cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. <laughs> there was some mudslinging in commercials. Are these specific things that you thought we could do on certain nights, part of that a la carte menu? Sure. Scandals and uh, attack ads are definitely things that we have talked about as a cast and thrown around in rehearsal. But the details of like how to execute them and who can you know, initiate them, that's not scripted. It's all of us ordering from that menu at once and trying to play with each other and make the show happen. And so how's the audience dealing with that? And who are they choosing that they think can actually lead them forward? Like, at last night's show, it was somebody who is a fictitious commodore of a Star Trek spaceship. Like, she won. <laughs> Yikes, I guess. <laughs> you to know. be fair, her, her vice president was, was a governor. Okay, yes. <laughs> yes, she was. It, it was, a, it was a, a female, female ticket. So it's also clearly a progressive politics show. <laughs> so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Mark Shalfond runs Washington Improv Theater, where he's directing POTUS Among Us, running at Source through November 5th. For more on the show, visit our website, metroconnection.org. few weeks, we've brought you interviews recorded at the StoryCorps mobile booth in Arlington, Virginia. StoryCorps is the oral history project that gives Americans the chance to record, share, and preserve the stories of their lives. This time around, we'll hear from Percy White III and his friend Terry Wright, who talk about growing up African-American in very different family situations. I am named after my father, Percy L. White Jr., who was named after his father, Percy L. White Sr., so um, 
I do love saying my name because I get to remember all my other my other family. But um, my mother's father, Arthur Wright, is something you and I would joke about because his last name is the same as yours. Right. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so my last name of Wright is a man my mother knew that was married to at some point, but I do not know who my father is. Mm. So as you have like a very rich family history and knowledge of it, I don't, <laughs> unfortunately. But I think that's why we have been very interested in each other. You're trying to help me find mine, and I probably know more about your family history <laughs> than you even do. But I would love to know more about yours. Well, so my mother's Caucasian. My siblings are Caucasian. Mm. And I was born one week after Martin Luther King was assassinated. So that was April 4th. 1968, and I was mm-hmm. born April 11th, 1968. So I can't imagine that time a white woman's giving birth and here comes a black child out of her, you know, <laughs> and what all that meant. It just is mind-boggling. In hindsight, do you have any, any feelings attached to that? I do. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in uh, a suburb of Buffalo. It's called Grand Island. Mm-hmm. And it was predominantly all white Um, and I actually grew up in a foster home because my mother struggled with alcohol and then later died from that and were you only african-american in school um there was like a couple I could probably count on my hand Hmm. one hand but they had the support of their black family so I was the only one in that situation of who am I Mm -hmm. but I don't know if I actually shared something with you as I was growing up Mm -hmm. I had um, come outside to play, and there in the yard was a burnt cross. Mm-hmm. And so I am thinking it's against God. You know, I was brought up Catholic, and my foster mom knew about it. Everybody knew about it, and it was like a big secret. And then I happened to see a Ku Klux Klan uh, movie, mm-hmm. but it all hit hit me at once. I saw these huge crosses. I'm like, Oh, my gosh. I was furious, but also disappointed, sad. I was upset by my foster parents. Like, you put me in danger. I needed to have this information. And I think they were trying to protect me. Um, But I felt like I need information in order to protect myself. Um, So I think that's why I will always treasure our relationship. Because as you force me to look at who I am, you know, it, it, it just helps. And, and thank you. And I, I do like learning about history and sharing it with you. And you and I get to talk about it and, and meeting different people. So I feel very blessed. That was Percy White III and Terry Wright at the StoryCorps mobile booth in Arlington, Virginia. The mobile booth departs this weekend, but thanks so much to everyone who came by over the past month to share their tales. end today's show with Bookend, our monthly look at D.C.'s literary scene. Today we bring you a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winner Edward P. Jones, author of The Known World, All Aunt Hagar's Children, and Lost in the City, the book that first put Jones on the literary map. 
This month marks the 20th anniversary re-release of Lost in the City. Jones talked with Jonathan Wilson about what the book means to him now. In terms of looking back at how you wrote back then, do you notice things that you wouldn't do now if you wrote the same stories? I think this, the stories in Lost in the City are generally um, the length of typical stories. Uh, and I don't think I could ever go back to doing those. I, I find that I'm more interested in stories that are read like novels, but still are maybe just a few pages longer than the stories in Lost in the City, which is why you get um, the stories in All on Taker's Children are a tad longer, and they're more complex, and there are many more characters. So I can't see um, myself doing anything generally like I did in Lost in the City. Uh, I was there, and I did my best, and now um, my brain is a different in a different place. I've read some of the things you've said in previous interviews about your writing process, and I know you famously said that you spent 10 years um, on the known world just in your own head before yeah. really writing uh, too much down. You've also said that as far as your next book, if nothing comes, nothing comes, and you will go on. Do you in some ways see your work as out of your control, as something that, that just comes to you and you can't really work on it? Or, or I don't know, how do you characterize it? You find, of course, that so many people, they wake up in the morning, have an idea for a story, and they go with it before they even know what the conclusion will be. I don't particularly like asking myself what should come next. Um, that conclusion is like a star in the sky. And from the first word, I'm always traveling towards that star in the sky. It sort of keeps you, as I've said, it keeps you honest. Because if you don't know where you're going to end up, then you find yourself all over the place. But if the star is there and you're moving towards that, it sort of keeps you on a better path. So you never start with just simply a character that you like. You really have a, an idea of where the end of your story is going to be. Yeah, you know, you might be sitting on the metro, you might be walking up and down the aisles at Safeway, and all of a sudden in your head, for no reason, no reason whatsoever, a woman is walking out of a cornfield with a gun in her hand, and behind her, behind her in the cornfield, there's a house on fire. When she... um gets out of the cornfield, you can see blood on her dress. And she goes up to a house that the reader should know is not her house. She doesn't knock. She simply opens the door. Now, you have that, and you can live with that for weeks or months or something. The whole thing is to try to find out the why of it and to come to some sort of logical um, and real conclusion. Uh but, you know, I'm not in it to cure cancer, so if I never come to reason why the woman has blood on her dress and has a gun in her hand and all the rest of it, then the world will survive. Um, but it's a, it's a challenge, uh, and in, in days when you do come up with a conclusion, it's fun. Getting back to this first book that you got published and the fact that it's the 20-year anniversary, when you think about what ties those stories together and what it means to you now. I mean, what, what would you say to somebody who's who's arriving at that work freshly, hasn't read any of your other work? What would you say to, to kind of give them a, a primer? Well, yeah, the, the first book of stories are 14, and I didn't think that I would ever, you know, have a reason to revisit any of those people in the stories. And three or four years after the book came out, I started envisioning um, major and minor characters in Lost in the City having their own stories as well. So uh, 
I would, of course, want people to read both books. But if you start with Lost in a City, which you should do, read the first story and and then the second, the first story on All Antigua's Children. They're related in that way. Uh, and then the second second story in Lost in a City and then the second story in All Antigua's Children, all the way to the 14th. All right. Um, Edward P. Jones, Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Known World and All on Hagar's Children and, of course, Lost in the City, which is now available with a new introduction written by the author himself to celebrate the 20th anniversary of its publication. Thank you so much for joining us on WAMU. Thank you for inviting me. The anniversary edition of Lost in the City is now available from Amistad Press in paperback. And if you're an Edward P. Jones fan, you can catch him Saturday at 6 p.m. at Politics and Prose. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Fenston, Martin DeCaro, and Lauren Landau, along with reporter Emily Kopp. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you our annual Haunted DC show. We'll talk with a man who spent his childhood convinced he was haunted by the ghost of a young girl. We'll check out some of the spookier spots in historic Annapolis. And we'll bring a spiritual medium to Fauquier County, Virginia, to visit a house whose previous and current owners both say they hear things going bump in the night. And it wasn't until we'd lived here a few months that we started hearing things in the night and just wondering what, what else was in the house with us. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.